BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. Episode 403 of the Bowery Boys, The Fulton Fish Market, History at the Seaport. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. And today we're visiting one of our favorite neighborhoods, the South Street Seaport in Lower Manhattan, It's a place full of history that links us back to the earliest days of New York City. It's also a place full of seafood. Mm -hmm. Delicious, delectable (laughs) seafood. Yes, today it's lobster rolls, grilled octopus, Mm. steamed bass, buttery, buttery scallops. Mm. Offerings of the many fine restaurants of the seaport area. But in today's show, we're taking you back to a time when this area was actually the heart of the American fish industry to the chaotic, ever-changing Fulton Fish Market. In the 19th century, the Fulton Fish Market was to seafood what Chicago stockyards were to the meat industry. Uh, That is to say the primary place where Americans got fish for their dinner tables. By the mid-20th century, the market employed thousands of men as fishermen or, you know, along the piers or within the market itself or even as delivery men. Maybe you have parents or grandparents who once worked the market. Mm -hmm. They might have stories about rusty old architecture or bizarre new sea creatures for sale. Or maybe they have stories about the mobsters who kept certain aspects of the market's distribution process under their control. Why did the fish market appear here at this very specific spot in New York? And also, how did it even function in the city? You know, how did people manage to sell thousands of tons of seafood in the 19th century and to keep it delicious and fresh before modern refrigeration? (laughs) Two words, Tom. Wet eyes. Wet eyes. (laughs) To explain what that means, later in the show, we'll be joined by Professor Jonathan H. Reese, author of the new book, The Fulton Fish Market, A History. But speaking of books, many people have a nostalgic view of the Fulton Fish Market, thanks to author Joseph Mitchell, who wrote about everyday life among the piers and the fish stalls of the waterfront. He describes this place very eloquently in a 1952 New Yorker article, later famously renamed Up in the Old Hotel. 
He writes, Every now and then, seeking to rid my mind of thoughts of death and doom, I get up early and go down to Fulton Fish Market. I usually arrive around 5.30 and take a walk through the two huge open-fronted market sheds, the old market and the new market, whose fronts rest on South Street and whose backs rest on piles in the East River. At that time, a little while before the trading begins, the stands in the sheds are heaped high and spilling over with 40 to 60 kinds of finfish and shellfish from the East Coast, the West Coast, the Gulf Coast, and half a dozen foreign countries. The smoky riverbank dawn, the racket the fishmongers make, the seaweedy smell, and the sight of this plentifulness always give me a feeling of well-being, and sometimes they elate me. I wander among the stands for an hour or so, then I go into a cheerful market restaurant named Sloppy Louie's and eat a big, inexpensive, invigorating breakfast. A kippered herring and scrambled eggs, or a shed row omelet, or split sea scallops and bacon, or some other breakfast specialty at the place. And we'll hear more from Joseph Mitchell, and even some more about Sloppy Louie's later in the show. But Greg, we're returning to the South Street Seaport in this show. And in fact, we did a whole show on the seaport all the way back in 2014. That's episode number 163. But can you situate us again? Because, you know, some things have changed since then. Certainly, a lot of things have. Yes. <laughs> we have. The South Street Seaport is a historic waterfront district on the East River in Lower Manhattan. Now, the Brooklyn Bridge marks its northern border, but the main thoroughfare is actually Fulton Street, and a large public plaza has been created here on Fulton, becoming its both its historic center and its recreational center today, actually. And of course, the east side is the waterfront, and South Street, the so-named South Street, runs parallel to that. Okay. Piers 15, 16, and 17 then jet out into the water from here. And today, they are home to many interesting bars and restaurants, as well as a few historic ships that are managed by the South Street Seaport Museum. This is a lovely place, but we should also add that something does kind of go through here that mars the otherwise lovely, you know, vista. And that is the FDR Drive, which cuts straight through above South Street, kind of breaking up the view a bit of those historic ships. Well, yeah. And, you know, not to mention the towering skyscrapers right along the edges of the historic district. Right. Now, there have been some recent victories in turning away more of these oppressive towers. But yes, today it's kind of hard to imagine yourself in the boots of an early 19th century sailor or a, a fisherman uh, walking through here with his nets. <laughs> um, I would love it, though, Greg, if you did put us, place us into some of those boots. Uh, <laughs> okay. What exactly was it like here in the early 19th century? You know, New York has, of course, heavily relied on the international shipping trade you know, since its beginning, since the old Dutch days. And its shoreline, particularly here on the East River side, in those early days were lined with piers. Later, to even out the shoreline and to accommodate ever larger shipping vessels, South Street was actually created by landfill. And the length of South Street that we're familiar with today 
was mostly all laid out by the year 1810. Mm -hmm. That made the east side even more suitable for a very robust shipping trade with all types of items transported here by ship to local warehouses and wharfs. This was the main economic story, really, of New York City in the early 19th century. So then what was special about this spot here, where, where Fulton Street meets the waterfront? Well, that is because of another and more local form of watercraft, the ferry that transported people between New York, which was just Manhattan back then, mm -hmm. and Long Island, where farmers, beef, and dairy suppliers from northern Manhattan could just travel overland down to the market mm -hmm. here at the tip of Manhattan, Long Island farmers could only come by ferry, of course. And by the early 19th century, there were actually many ferries that operated from this spot. And then into the picture comes Robert Fulton, who begins operating a more efficient steam ferry from Brooklyn to Manhattan in 1814. And today, it's Pretty easy to figure out the two departure points of these ferries on either side. I believe those would be Fulton Street in Brooklyn, mm -hmm. heading over to Fulton Street in New York. <laughs> That's right. Those names were actually given to those streets after Fulton died in 1815. Okay, so just the hmm. year after the steam ferry began operation. It was around this time that New York's Fulton Street was actually extended across the island to even reach the Hudson River, becoming this major east-west thoroughfare. Which obviously made it a very busy thoroughfare. So much so that the merchant Peter Skirmerhorn from that old New York Skirmerhorn family, of, mm -hmm. of whom we talk about quite often, he saw how all this was developing, and in 1812, built several counting houses or financial offices here along Fulton Street, right here next to the East River waterfront. Today, these are the landmark buildings that we know and love as Skirmerhorn Row. He would lease the space here to other merchants in the maritime trade. And eventually, according to the South Street Seaport Museum, who currently make those buildings their home, quote, these buildings formed the heart of the city's first World Trade Center, unquote. Well, well, you can actually walk Fulton Street today from the South Street Seaport to today's World Trade Center Plaza. It's the past and the, the future meeting. But today we're talking about food and fish in particular. So when did Fulton Street first get a market? Well, it took a few years, but it is a direct result of the Fulton Ferry opening in 1814. Now, as we've mentioned on many shows, back in these days, if you wanted meat, dairy, produce, fish, anything perishable, you had to buy it at one of these large outdoor food markets. And they were scattered over the city, but none were really necessarily convenient to the Fulton Ferry. So they decided to build another market literally across from the ferry landing. And eventually, that first market opened in the year 1822, a one-story open structure on Fulton Street on the west side of South Street with dozens of booths available to rent. 
although there was a lot of business that also spilled out into the streets, right? This Mm -hmm. would be a tradition that would pretty much carry on all the way into the 21st century. And over the decades, the market grows to incorporate several streets and several buildings in this area. And the key to the market's incredible growth would be fish. But it wasn't like it was a big party down here. There were some tensions, namely between the butchers and the fishmongers. And for a natural reason, I think, New York was growing northward, of course. Meat took up more space in the market than fish did. Mm -hmm. But here at the Fulton Market, you know, fish sellers could get the freshest product brought to them right at the piers. It became more of an effort for meat sellers to bring their product down here. And in the 1830s and 40s, the Hudson River Railroad would would develop along the west side of Manhattan, um, which then became Mm -hmm. an easier way to transport all kinds of things, especially meat products, down into the city. And as a result, then, all sorts of meat processing factories popped up over on the west side. So gradually, here at the Fulton Market, the fish were taking over. Now, all these other products would remain, you know, throughout the decades in some volume. But by the time of the Civil War, this really became a centralized area of fish distribution and the largest fish market in America. And right, which to be clear, they were not just selling here to the New York market. This fish was going out across the country, you know, wherever they could take it really. And a major factor of the market's growth was improvements in fishing techniques and fish preservation, allowing fishermen to bring in all sorts of different items from the sea. No longer was it merely local fish or oysters. Now you could get more exotic sorts of seafood at the market, turning the Fulton Fish Market not only into a hub of retail and then wholesale transactions, but kind of like a carnival. Hmm. It was like an aquarium, (laughs) a sideshow, and eventually a tourist attraction. And we will take you on a tour of the wild and exotic and very aromatic Fulton Fish Market right after this. The New York Historical Society produces For the Ages, a history podcast. Host David M. Rubenstein engages the nation's foremost historians and creative thinkers in conversation on a wide range of subjects, including presidential biography, the nation's founding, and the people who have shaped the American story. Enter the world of special operations with Admiral William H. McRaven and learn about his career in the Navy SEALs and his part in the capture of Saddam Hussein. The new book by Kermit Roosevelt III, The Nation That Never Was, reconstructs the common story we tell about America, that our fundamental values as a country were stated in the Declaration of Independence, fought for in the Revolution, and made law in the Constitution. You'll hear Mr. Roosevelt argue for a reinterpretation of this story. And as Americans learned in recent years, the peaceful transfer of power from one U.S. president to another is the most delicate and hazardous period in the entire political cycle. Listen to David Marchek discuss the history, complexity, and current best practices associated with this most vital of democratic institutions. That's For the Ages, a history podcast. Available on Apple and Spotify.
BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts. So you brought us up into the mid-1800s down here at the Fulton Market, which kicks off its heyday as this retail and wholesale market. Uh, Because even Mm -hmm. though you mentioned that residents were moving up the island and out of this area, thousands of New Yorkers and Brooklynites moved along Fulton Street every day, making their way to the ferry dock at the end of Fulton Street. How convenient. You could just stop into the Fulton Market building to pick up some food for dinner, mm-hmm. maybe some some meat, some veggies over there, and, of course, all the fish that you need. <laughs> and, of course, you could also slurp down some oysters while you were there, which we will attempt in a second here. I mean, okay. figuratively. <laughs> That'll make some nice audio. <laughs> <laughs> but first, in, in 1869... Fishing firms at the market organized the Fulton Fishmongers Association, and they leased land here from the city, um, adjoining that lovely Fulton Ferry Terminal across from the market hall itself. They constructed here their own permanent wholesale market building. Well... 1869. So if we're near the start of, you know, all this great wealth flowing into the city that we call the Gilded Age, Mm -hmm. I imagine that this must have been an extraordinary work of architecture. Well, it was a two-story wooden structure, and it Mm, was was attacked by the press when it opened for being an eyesore. 
um, and also being constructed of wood. In, you so know. this was not a Richard Morris Hunt <laughs> project, <laughs> or maybe it was McKim, Mead, and Whitefish. <laughs> okay, getting our, getting our fish puns out early. Continue. Sorry. My point is that it was built of wood in an age of frequent fires. The the Brooklyn Daily Eagle wrote, The new building is of wood. It is part of the mysteries of New York City government that at this late day, when the downtown portion of the city is so fully built up that a large public market should be allowed to be built of wood, it is nothing less than a scandal that another should be added to the miserable wooden shanties that disgrace the name of the markets in the city of New York. Yeah, so a thumbs down. But this also illustrates how, you know, the wholesale fisheries at the market were were really growing by this time and becoming more powerful. And obviously, this location right here off the piers was convenient for fishing vessels. They could dock right behind the, the wholesale market and unload their cargo right into the building. And as I said earlier... The fish market, it, it was the largest in the country. It supplied the entire country pr- as these preservation methods continue to improve. Right. And we did a show not long ago on the ice business in New York. But ice had a profound effect on the wholesale fish business because you could now catch fish farther away, right, and, and bring them dead or already filleted to the market on ice, and then you could also sell them and send them off farther away, deeper into the country, for the same reason. And th- this meant that eventually Fulton Fish Market dealers could sell fish from all over the country to clients all over the country. Fisheries up in Massachusetts and New England could now send their catches down by train on ice and sell them in the markets early in the morning and send them right back off to the buyer by train that same day. And in many cases, then the fish would only be in the market for a few hours. So trains are bringing in fish. And of course, fishing boats were docking right there, as you mentioned. And right. More than 100 fishing smacks, as they were as they were called. Greg, we're talking smack. Smacks that were owned by market dealers a docked here on the east side, and many contained fishing wells that kept the fish alive. Um, so that was another option. Fish could actually be brought to the market alive. They were kept alive by water on the vessel. You don't get much more fresh than that. No. <laughs> I mean, every minute counts when you're selling fresh fish. That's right. But I want to head inside that other building, okay, the main market building across the street that I set up earlier in the show, just to soak in some of that ambience. <laughs> Watch out what you're soaking up. <laughs> Unfortunately, in 1878, that market hall from the 1820s suffered a massive fire, and the retail market that had been housed there had to move, move in with the wholesalers across the street. And the year after the fire in 1879, as the city was debating about how to rebuild it, the New York Times wrote an article that took readers on a kind of nostalgic tour of the old market hall. Quote, The market has generally been excellent, hardly to be surpassed anywhere. The best and richest of meats, the most delicate of fish, the nicest of vegetables, the finest of fruits, were always to be found there in profusion. 
The stalls, benches, shelves, and crannies are kept scrupulously clean. But the old sheds, swelling out into booths and cubbies for the sale of coffee, cakes, pies, periodicals, newspapers, and miscellaneous gym cracks have been for years soiled, unseemly, and impaired. Recently, the market is not as bad as it was. Still, it is a nondescript structure with its groceries, coffee and cake shops, petty haberdasheries, cheap restaurants, hucksters' stalls, oyster saloons, news vendor stands, and skirmish lines of fruit hawkers' wagons. And the chief attraction of Fulton Market since the incoming of the latter half of the 19th century has been its oyster saloons. Of all the oysters of the world, those of America take the lead. Of all American oysters, those of New York stand first. And Fulton Market oysters excel any oysters brought to this port. Mm, So it sounds like New Yorkers, or, or at least this particular journalist, have a complex relationship with the Fulton Market. It really sings the praises of one oyster house in particular at the market, called Dorland's. And the the article lists a kind of like who's who of 19th century personalities who all, according to this article, slurped down oysters at Dorland's over the years, from Charles Dickens to Emerson, from Boss Tweed to Abraham Lincoln. I mean, including a long list of opera stars and dancers, men and women alike. I mean, this was a major tourist destination for the city during the Gilded Age. If if you were taking in the city's main sites, you stopped at Fulton Market to taste some of the world's finest oysters. But you did mention that the main market building had been damaged in fire. Was that 1878? That's right. Yep. So they obviously rebuilt. Yes, on the very same spot. And on that spot where today's movie theater stands and at Fulton and South Street. The IPIC, yeah. On that spot, yes. They, they built a large red brick Victorian building that opened in April 1883. This is just two months before something else big in the neighborhood opened. Hmm, something, something high overhead. Something really high. <laughs> really long, we're talking, of course, about the Brooklyn Bridge. Which brought about a revolutionary change for residents on both sides of the East River, of course. People who no longer needed to board ferries to cross from one Fulton Street to the other Fulton Street. Mm-mm. Now on the Manhattan side, people exited the bridge next to City Hall several blocks from Fulton Market. Yeah, and foot traffic plunged immediately in the area around the Fulton Ferry in Manhattan and and around Fulton Market. Ferry service would continue for decades. In fact, it would operate until 1924. But the ferry became a relic from a much slower era. And this then, in turn, changed the nature of the market. Because without commuters and because, you know, not that many people lived around here, the retail market floundered while the wholesale market flourished. And so by 1907, the market had become entirely wholesale. And that meant that most of the buying and selling started, you know, around three or four in the morning and finished for the day by nine o'clock in the morning or so. Ensuring that 
many, many generations of New Yorkers, maybe even most New Yorkers then, would never really see it up and running at its sort of full pace. Mm -hmm. The Fulton Fish Market is sometimes seen as an enduring, never-changing entity just you know flowing along mm-hmm. but a lot of changes did happen very slowly transforming the market really significantly into the 20th century for instance in 1907 the Fulton Fishmongers Association constructed a new building referred to as the Tin Building between piers 17 and 18 then 2 years later sellers of freshwater fish well they got themselves their own home just north at Pier 18. Mm. But to underscore the delicate nature of all these enterprises, in 1936, that building, the home of the freshwater fish sellers, collapsed into the East River. Wait, it did what? It collapsed? <laughs> the whole building? From the New York Times, August 12th, 1936, quote, The two-and-a-half-story gray building that for 29 years has been the center of the receiving and wholesaling activity at Fulton Fish Market was doomed yesterday following the collapse of a 125-foot section shortly after midnight. The most frequent observation was that if the foundation had given way during a busy morning, hundreds would have perished, unquote. Three years later, though, a new market building would replace the one that was destroyed here. And that was, which year did it slide into the water, 1936? Mm-hmm. What had happened the previous 30 years that allowed it to fall into such disrepair? Well, in a larger sense, to be honest, the neighborhood you know, has never really been considered distinguished with waterfront boarding houses, taverns, brothels, and other types of disreputable joints up and down the East River waterfront. So suffice it to say then that the waterfront was still very rough. And at the same time, the Fulton Market was also cut off from the rest of the city in many ways too. It it wasn't really well connected via the newly built subway. No. You know, that's for sure. And you can really feel that when you're actually down in the seaport. Fortunately, by the 1920s, it really was more of a wholesale business anyway, which leads to another major change. Trucks, in particular, refrigerated trucks, which could, of course, bring in and take out seafood to this area and kept all of that preserved for even longer periods of time. Of course, on the downside, that also meant that national customers didn't really need the Fulton Fish Market as trucks could then bypass the market as a, as a middleman here. As a result, then, the market became focused on the thriving local market of New York City, whose population of over 7 million people actually quite loved eating fish, mm-hmm. even more so, actually, buying it from their local grocer and deli, items that were most likely supplied by this market. So things sound like they are in They were in flux here. But, of course, they were in flux everywhere. I mean, look over at the meatpacking district. By the 1930s, they were actually improving conditions over there with the construction of that elevated railroad that connected the the factories and warehouses, the railroad that today we call the High Line. Things seem to be more dysfunctional down here around the fish market. (laughs) Yeah, and because of the most notorious element 
to the market of this period. And that's the tightening control after the 1920s by organized crime. Generally speaking, of course, the the mob gained incredible power and influence during the Prohibition era with the illicit sale and distribution of alcohol. But of course, they extended that power into other areas, you know, that could be easily controlled by coercion. Namely, you know, this old overburdened market down in a somewhat sketchy section of the city. Yeah. And the story begins with a gangster named Joseph Lanza, who first worked his way into the market as a handler. And then by 1926, as the head of the local 359 of the United Seafood Workers. And it was in this role that he began to exert a more ominous influence. Not for nothing, he was nicknamed Joseph Socks Lanza. Oh, and not for his colorful taste in socks? (laughs) Well, maybe also that, I can't confirm. But no, he had a a very hot temper and liked to punch people out. Lanza would eventually operate for the powerful Genovese crime family, which would, of course, link the operation to their other criminal enterprises across the country. And how exactly did they exert control? Well, to quote from the mafia history book Five Families by Selwyn Robb, quote, To survive, more than 100 trucking companies and 50 wholesalers depended on the rapid unloading of quickly perishable seafood brought into New York five days a week. The mob's iron grip derived from this movement of food in and out of the market. Six companies, called unloaders, were the only ones authorized by the Genovese family to unpack refrigerated trucks arriving with their valuable catches from East Coast ports and fish hatcheries. For prompt delivery to a wholesaler's stall only a few feet away, the merchant or the trucking company had to bribe the unloaders. Otherwise, the seafood was left to spoil on the pavement and became worthless. Unquote. And there were other very crafty ways in which they held control of this whole process here, including you know, just outright stealing thousands of pounds of fish by misweighing a bounty as it would come in. You could say they put their fingers on the scales. In more ways than one. And this, this really affected everyday New Yorkers because then prices would obviously increase, you know, across the board. Something had to be done about this. Yes, Mayor Fiorella LaGuardia was on the case almost immediately upon taking office in 1934. And eventually, Sox here was convicted of labor racketeering in 1938 and later of extortion. But the Genovese family was still in control here. There had been small victories over the decades, like to sort of chip some of this away, in particular in the late 1980s, But there was some aspect of organized crime here at the Fulton Fish Market into the start of the 21st century. But Tom, before we move on from the mid-century here, I want to present a counter-narrative to all this film noir Jimmy Cagney movie (laughs) scene that, that I've just described. Right, because thousands of people worked at the fish market and, and thousands more bought fish 
at the market, right? Every day. I mean, it might have been a bit dysfunctional, but it was a bustling marketplace. Some of the everyday experiences of the Fulton Fish Market were documented by New Yorker writer Joseph Mitchell, who wrote passionately about the people who worked here. And, you know, perhaps most famously in his short story called Up in the Old Hotel. And yes, I read a passage from the story Up in the Old Hotel at the beginning of the show. In the story, Mitchell interviews Louie, the proprietor of Sloppy Louie's Restaurant, which was located within one of these old Skirmerhorn Row buildings, 92 South Street. Here's another excerpt of how Mitchell describes the place. Sloppy Louie's is small and busy. The tables in Louie's are communal, and there are exactly one dozen. Their tops have been seasoned by drippings and spillings from thousands upon thousands of platters of broiled fish, and their edges have been scratched and scarred by the hatchets and bale hooks that hang from frogs on fishmongers' belts. At the back of the room is a huge floor mirror on which, each morning, Louis writes the menu for the day. It is sometimes a lengthy menu. A good many dishes are served in Louis that are rarely served in other restaurants. One day, interspersed among the staple seafood restaurant dishes, Louis listed cod cheeks, salmon cheeks, cod tongues, sturgeon liver, blue shark steak, tuna steak, squid stew, and seven kinds of roe. Cheeks are delectable morsels of flesh found along the jaws of some fishes. They come into the market in small shipments, and the fishmongers, thinking of their own gullets, let Louis buy almost every shipment. The fishmongers use Louis as a testing kitchen. When anything unusual is shipped to the market, it is taken to Louis and tried out. In the course of a year, Louis undoubtedly serves a wider variety of seafood than any other restaurant in the country. Today, the former home of Sloppy Louis Restaurant is a bicycle shop that's located next door to SJP by Sarah Jessica Parker, a footwear boutique owned by the star of Stage and Screen. Whoa, there's a lot to unpack there. <laughs> she loved Cosmopolitans. <laughs> well, we're going to refill our Cosmopolitans and get to the rest of the history of the Fulton Fish Market and our interview with Jonathan Reese after this. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Parents, when you visit California, childhood rules. If you don't remember how awesome childhood is, just ask yourself. What would kids do? Dance to a giant organ played by ocean waves? Yep. Camp in floating tree houses hundreds of feet off the ground? Check. Jump in a big tub of mud on purpose? Call it rejuvenation. 
We don't care. Just pack your fun pants and let childhood rule your family vacation. If you need help, ask your kids. Start planning at visitcalifornia.com. Why pick one city, one beach, one restaurant, or even one view? With Celebrity Cruises, you can have it all. Explore the best of Europe, the Caribbean, and Alaska with the best premium cruise line. And now get 75% off your second guest, plus bonus savings on select dates with Celebrity Cruises' semi-annual sale. Visit Celebrity.com, call 1-800-CELEBRITY, or contact your travel advisor. Offer applies to non-refundable fares and select sailing. Savings vary by stateroom category. Other terms apply. Visit Celebrity.com for details. Ships Registry Malta. But um, rewinding, rewinding to when the area was still home to Sloppy Louis and, and the early morning picturesque bustle of fishmongers, the 1950s also saw the addition of a Robert Moses project that we alluded to earlier, the elevated FDR Drive, uh, which opened high over South Street here in 1954. And, you know, while it did carve up the neighborhood and sort of separate the waterfront from the neighborhood, it also managed to clear up some of the traffic that had been clogging up South Street. Well, I mean, you know, the streets were congested, especially in those early morning hours with all these trucks. But, you know, it also today cast this shadow down on the entire neighborhood. Yes. And Jonathan Reese, whom, whom we'll speak with here in a minute, points out that, that some market workers actually liked having the FDR drive, you know, overhead. He quotes a, a fish market employee who said, quote, thank God they built it to protect us from the weather. It actually made their lives a little easier, as so much of the buying and selling was done outside, exposed to the elements, unquote. By the mid-century, and this is a larger story with New York, the shipping had almost entirely ceased from these particular piers. The neighborhood's kind of run down, yet the fish market, it's still going strong. Um, still without proper cold storage facilities, still without any, you know, real modern wholesale market building. And this was also one of the most congested neighborhoods in the country. And they were still relying on trucks to move the fish and the seafood around. So city planners just could not really see any reason why they should keep this fish market operating down here. And by the mid-century, you know, there were other big changes that were happening, taking place in the fish industry. Americans were consuming lots of fish, okay, by the 1950s and 60s, but it was mostly a more industrialized fish product that they were consuming. Oh, yeah. Fish sticks, fish planks, <laughs> right. Long John Silvers, Captain D's. Filets of fish <laughs> These are all delicious products, and they they were produced from fish, you know, often cod and other white fish. And most of them don't really go through a wholesale fish market on their way to being produced. You know, these are companies that can catch their own <laughs> fish. They probably flash freeze them on the ship or once they're on shore, and then in many cases, crank them out, you know, of their own factory. They make their own fish sticks. And so where does this leave the Fulton fish market? Because they don't have they don't have fish sticks down here. No. The the fish market here became more of a local fish market. You know, f feeding fish aficionados 
aficionados throughout New York City. Fish dealers started, you know, working with higher-end fishmongers and local fish shops, and of course with restaurants in the city. You know, chefs would wake up very early and head down to the Fulton Fish Market um, to peruse the catches for that night's menu. So this change in taste and demand for higher-end food and seafood and, and of course, the newly found American taste for sushi, Mm -hmm. for instance, all this was happening in the 70s and the 80s and to the 90s. And so, you know, I guess this was keeping the fish market a, a bustling place. Yes, in the middle of the night, which it led to also being underappreciated or even misunderstood. Most New Yorkers didn't see the market in full swing. And I I mentioned back in our 2014 show on the seaport that in the late 1990s, I, I used to ride my bike through the market every morning to get to my job down on Maiden Lane. But I rode through the market area around 9 a.m., So really, the only action that I saw by that time were guys kind of hosing down the blacktop and the sidewalk, Mm -hmm. you know, and I I saw lots and lots of fish guts that I'd actually ride through and and smelly ice and things, you know, and then by my lunch break, when I would head outside, the fish market was really a ghost town. By the way, that job you mentioned on Maiden Lane, that was next to the seaport area and a new skyscraper that went up in the 1980s. So, I mean, that's a pretty big sign that something's changing down here. Yes. Now, remember the 1961 zoning law? Well, this allowed for even taller skyscrapers to be constructed, you know, as long as they bought neighboring air rights and such. And and these new taller office buildings, of course, once they went up down in this area, also led to higher land values for the entire neighborhood. And that even put more pressure on existing businesses like the old fish industries down here to pay higher rents or to get out. It wasn't a complete free-for-all, thank goodness, as you had concerned citizens like Peter and Norma Stanford, who formed the Friends of the South Street Maritime Museum in 1966. Right, and they succeeded in getting landmark status for a number of historic buildings down here. And the South Street Seaport Museum was opened in 1967, And a 10-block area down here was designated a New York City Historic District in 1977. As we discussed in that South Street Seaport episode, um, starting in 1979, a redevelopment of the area began, which was led by the Rouse Company, which had redeveloped Quincy Market along Boston's waterfront. Mm, well, and that has like a similar feel, a similar vibe mm-hmm. to the South Street Seaport, and it also embraces its history. Exactly, it, and it also incorporates a shopping mall. Um, but, and the, <laughs> the first mall opened here at South Street Seaport in 1983, right on the site of the original Fulton Market building from the 1820s. And that building still stands today. And then Two years later, in 1985, another mall opened across the street, across South Street, called Pier 17, which which jutted out into the East River. But it was really popular when it opened, and the museum also acquired and preserved a great collection of historic ships Mm -hmm. and sailing vessels, which are docked here to this day. So that's the neighborhood. We see some, some fast changes are happening. And so what's going on with the fish market? Well, it was still operating 
at the same time that those, you know, new malls were opening. But it was feeling even more pressure, you know, as tourists were, you know, thronging to the to the neighborhood. It was like, you know, let's head to the gap in Pier 17, but watch out when we leave so we don't step on a dead fish. You know, it, it no <laughs> it no longer really fit into the neighborhood like it had. It, it had made the neighborhood and now it was kind of an outsider. And then under the Bloomberg administration, uh, the city took on a massive project to redevelop Manhattan's entire waterfront, adding parks and restoring piers for recreational purposes and for ferry docks. This was happening on both sides of the island, which included right here. And by then, the South Street Seaport had really seen better days. I mean, that mall, she was a mess after a while. And yeah, I loved it. I loved it. I, I, I have fond memories, but it was a mess. It had fallen on hard times by the early 2000s. And by then, you know, the Rouse Company was done with it. In 2004, they sold off their holdings, you know, in the area to another company, General Growth Holdings, GGH, which then in 2009 sold them off to another company called the Howard Hughes Corporation, which still holds them today. But by this latest development, of course, 2009, the old fish market was gone. Right. The relocation of the Fulton Fish Market, which had been discussed since the 1850s, finally happened in 2005 when it moved to a brand new facility in the Hunts Point neighborhood of the Bronx. November 11th, 2005 was the last day that the original Fulton Fish Market operated. Three days later, it opened in the Bronx. And it still operates there today. Now, as for the old South Street Seaport area, the entire neighborhood was severely impacted in late 2012 by Superstorm Sandy. And then the Howard Hughes Corporation, who you mentioned, then demolished that old Pier 17 mall and then built a glassier, more modern, sleeker Mm -hmm. type (laughs) place, which opened in 2018. And I'm somewhat pleased and surprised to say that the neighborhood has lately generated a lot of buzz among foodies, Mm -hmm. among restaurant lovers, as the restaurateur Jean-Georges Van Gerichten opened an incredible upscale eating hall inside a fabulously restored tin building. It's kind of like the tin building. <laughs> and that just opened in November of 2022. It is almost surreal. Um, and inside this structure, you'll find multiple restaurants and multiple bars and fish and meat counters. It, it's almost like you're walking through some sort of a dream, right? I mean, we both had meals there last week. The food does pay homage to the neighborhood's past, but, you know, without that grit, I guess. Right. It's a very sleek, gorgeous place, but very sanitized. It it sparkles, but it, it doesn't have guts, literally. <laughs> well, you do see some fresh dead fish, actually, when you walk right in. Like, That's they have true. to keep the theme running, right? On ice. On ice when you walk in. It's true. Well, we are now joined by Jonathan Reese, a professor of history at Colorado State University, Pueblo. His books include Refrigeration Nation, A History of Ice, Appliances, and Enterprise in America, 
and before the refrigerator, how we used to get ice, and the Fulton Fish Market, a history. Welcome to the show, Professor Reese. Thank you for having me. Yes, thank you for being here, and actually thanks for being so obsessed with the Fulton Fish Market that you wrote a whole book on it, because it, it is such a fascinating place in New York City history. What is it specifically about the Fulton Fish Market that makes for a larger and more interesting story to tell than, you know, say like a regular market story? Because you know, New York has other markets, there are other famous markets, but what is it about the Fulton Fish Market that makes it such a compelling story? I think there are two answers to that question, one at the beginning of its history and the other at its end. At the beginning of its history, the Fulton Fish Market is not just selling to New Yorkers. I like to compare it to the um, packing town on the south side of Chicago. Lots of fish come mm -hmm. in from the ocean. They're processed at the Fulton Fish Market, and they're sold not just to people in the city, but people all over the country. And it's earlier than the the meat market in Chicago. It's it's a huge, almost national market for fish based in New York. Towards the end of its history, what I think is really interesting about it is it's sort of the last major blue-collar industry in Manhattan. Uh, long after everybody else has moved out, whether it's to the suburbs or the boroughs, there are still people in lower Manhattan cutting, processing, selling fish. And people you know, with white-collar jobs can go visit and see them. It really is a market that has these several different phases in its story. I, I wanted to focus for a minute on its heyday as a retail market, um, when it was thronged with customers and diners in, in that period in the 1870s and early 1880s before the opening of the Brooklyn Bridge. What do you think a trip to this retail market would have been like? Can, can you kind of take us inside here? What, where would you have liked to have visited in that market? Um, the retail building itself is legendary for a number of reasons. Uh, its size, its scope, uh, the people who visited there, like Charles Dickens and various other people who arrived in New York. Uh, it's probably most famous, I think, for its oysters. Oysters, of course, are a you know, Manhattan staple uh, and really all over the city, M many of it coming from local water. Uh, this was supposed to be the best place to get oysters. And the interesting thing, and probably my only contribution to you know, the oyster literature in Manhattan, is that just because it's popular to eat there doesn't mean that they're being wholesaled there. The wholesale oyster business is actually closer to Washington market for the 19th century than it is to Fulton Fish Market. But Dorland's is probably the most, uh, the best known, but there are lots of oyster places in that market. Those oysters are being cooked inside. They're smoking up the place. The produce dealers are complaining about that uh, for years at a time. There are sheds, there are tables, uh, farmers coming in from Long Island would rent a table. Um, there's also sort of makeshift places right outside the building out on the street where people will just peddle whatever they happen to be selling. So it'll be pretty crazy because it's such a crowded place. And of course, it'll be crazy in the 20th century, but that's only during the evening when mm. the people are coming to, to, to sell their fish, uh, either dropping it off, process it, or, or, or pick it up. In the 19th century, it's going to be crazy all day round. 
Well, and and because there were so many, you know, people heading to the ferry, people who worked in lower Manhattan, and we're not just talking about like in the financial district, but so much industry was down there, so many different kinds of businesses were centered there. They would just pop over for lunch or or pop over before they boarded the ferry back home to pick up something or to eat dinner. It must have just been extremely lively. Very lively, very crowded, and in a very crowded neighborhood. Like you point out, it's an industrial neighborhood. First, there are people who live there, if we go to the very early 19th century. Then it becomes a mostly industrial neighborhood, but there are still people going in and out of it all the time. Uh, But then, as you sort of hinted at before, the Brooklyn Bridge passes it by. I haven't done the block count, but it's got to be at least a half a mile of the Brooklyn Bridge sort of sets down in Manhattan beyond where the Fulton Fish Market was. And when that happens, all the sort of natural traffic just disappears. The ferry itself persists into the 20s. Uh, but the you know the traffic on that ferry it goes down to almost nothing, uh, and so the whole retail business just disappears. But that neighborhood just gets passed by. People are predicting as early as the twenties that it's going to be a huge booming place, mm. but it's not a huge booming place until South Street Seaport comes along in the mid nineteen sixties, and even that development takes time. Um, so it's a neighborhood that's changing constantly, and of course the market is going to change with it. One of the things that you point out that we would see really indispensable to the the greater fish business, if you will, and is something that you've written two different books on, and that is ice. You go into a lot of detail about how important ice is, and it's probably an unfair question to ask you to you know generally state that in just a few <laughs> se- in a few minutes here. But can you just sort of introduce the listener to the importance of ice? in the fishing business yeah let's do this two ways first as i think everybody knows when a fish dies it goes bad very very quickly mm-hmm. if you don't do something to it so ice is incredibly important as a source of refrigeration and really before the 1920s ice is almost the only form of refrigeration fish could get so when ice becomes an industry in the greater new york area around 1830 to 1850, suddenly it becomes possible for the fish business to really kick it up to the next level. Um, You have a growing fish business really from 1822 when the market opens. But when 1850 comes around and you use ice, suddenly you can begin to get fish from further away and sell it further away because the ice will prevent that fish from becoming inedible. It'll stop it the bacteria from taking over and and making it something that you wouldn't want to eat. The other thing about ice and fish, which still persists to this day, despite the fact there's much better refrigeration, is that the kind of refrigeration that ice gives is very useful to fish. It has to do with the skin and the eyes. Um, Mm -hmm. You want to keep both of those moist or the eyes are going to look awful and the skin is going to dry up. So if you go to a fish store today, that's why all the fish you see are still displayed on ice, mm. even though you know they could stick them in a freezer or something like that if they really wanted to. Ice is just the best form of refrigeration for that particular perishable good. 
I think you just changed my outlook on my seafood restaurant in my grocery store. <laughs> like figuring out, oh, right, that's why they use so much ice in this area and not in other areas. Yep. Now, what is really interesting about the Fulton Fish Market is, I mean, it's this, it's this classic place. It's a sort of iconic business of New York City history. But, you know, in reality, it really develops into rather a kind of imperfect solution for selling fish, especially as we get here into the 20th century. Like, it's not an ideal economic distribution model, right? I mean, what are some of the flaws that sort of become built into the Fulton fish market around, you know, around the turn of the century, I guess, because there could could be many flaws, I'm sure. But during that period, it's very difficult to talk about the flaws and the advantages because some of the flaws are advantages and some of the advantages are flaws. <laughs> I think the way I want to approach that question is just simply note that during the 20th century, it has this reputation as being this relic of an earlier age and being in constant decline, really from at least 1940 moving forward. And I just don't think that's right. It's a dynamic place that changes the way it does business in order to make more money, but it still has a lot of problems with it. But you could make a lot of money even though you have a lot of problems. Um, So if we're talking about the main flaw, for me, it's refrigeration. Um, There's no cold storage warehouse, for instance, anywhere near there. Um, They're dependent on really primitive icing facilities for most of the 20th century, but they get the ice and they can still make a profit by turning over the fish really quickly um, so the fish will be fresher when it gets to where it's going. One of the other Mm -hmm. changes they did constantly is just start handling different kinds of seafood. You know, the Fulton Fish Market, the people who introduced scallops to the United States, uh, just to go with one that, (laughs) that immediately hits my memory, they'll uh, move from one fish to another very quickly. In the 80s, they'll um, start with squid, call it calamari, and then everybody's going to eat it. Black and red fish was a thing the full fish market exploited in the 80s as well. They always found a different way to make money selling fish. (laughs) Some You can change the fish. You can change the way you prepare the fish. uh, You can change where you're selling the fish. But these businesses, and they're all, maybe not every last single one of them, but most of them are very small family-owned firms, will band together or break apart, but sort of the collective will continually adopt these changing circumstances. Even as the neighborhood itself starts to look like a museum, uh, the business itself is constantly changing. So it's it's very tradition-bound, but it's dynamic at the same time. It has advantages. And it has disadvantages. Are you surprised at all that the fish market lasted as long as it did downtown? I mean, you you do underscore that it didn't really need to be down here. And I don't know what the argument was even for keeping it down here. I am surprised that it lasted as long as it did. They were starting to talk about moving it as early as the mid-1950s. And the city made a very concerted effort to do so starting in the 60s. But I think it's worth underscoring the market is not just a single building or three buildings. It is an entire neighborhood. A lot of the activity is going to happen out in the street 
or in front of other buildings owned by fish-related companies that moved there because the fish market was there, if that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. You might be a fish market firm and work inside the building and do your business out in the street, uh, but you also might be a bigger firm. You might buy a building in the neighborhood and still do your business out in the street. So there's not just a single building or even three buildings that would have to be moved. You're essentially taking an entire industry and moving it to the Bronx. And a lot of people in that industry didn't want to go. So they make lots of arguments in the 60s and 70s. They're afraid of crime in the Bronx. There are just a, a number of different reasons. They're just afraid that their investments are all going to become worthless. And so they're going to resist. And it takes really uh -huh. about 15 years once Rudy Giuliani becomes mayor to just sort of force them out by making an argument. Some of it's sanitary. Some of it's related to the prosecution of organized crime at the market that there's simply no other place for you to go. And everybody agreed that moving to the Bronx was good for the fish. So it's not like doing business out on the street where, you know, pigeons can defecate on the fish if they're uh, not protected or it could rain or all of this other stuff. It's a really apparently a very nice place to do business. So eventually, um, when all these forces came together, it had to move. I was struck by the the notion that uh, you really reinforce that the whole area was this sort of outdoor market stretched over several blocks and buildings. There's a lot of wonderful outdoor cafes, outdoor dining. I'm like, this wouldn't have existed 30 years ago. That's for sure. It would have been completely different. So it's it's even hard to kind of visualize that, which I guess is why it's so important to remember the history. If you think of a place like Quincy Market in Boston, you think of a single building. And that's, of course... Uh, you know, because the building itself is historic. The Fulton Fish Market buildings, there are at least seven of them. And some of that number depends on whether you count a shed as a building or not. <laughs> uh, and so one of the hardest things I had to do is figure out when anybody talked about going down to Fulton Market, which part of Fulton Market are they talking mm -hmm. about? You know, do I know which building it is? Do I know... Uh, who owns that building? Do I know um, whether it moves from one place to another at a, at a particular given time? So out of all the work I did, probably the hardest thing to do uh, was to figure out the map in the front so that I can at least give a basic outline of the official buildings. Uh, and I don't uh -huh. do it on the map in the front of the book, but if you look in the rest of the book, you can see I just underscore that the Fulton Fish Market is a neighborhood and it's a community. It's not just a single building like the tin building. Indeed, I think it's safe to say that more action happens out in the, out on the street than in any single building over the course of the market's entire history. And you can just see that from the pictures I've included. Um, the other thing is where the tin building is now, that uh, upscale food emporium, uh, which is lovely. I've been there. I ate very well. But it's it's not... I wouldn't so much say that the tin building by itself is important for what went on in it. I'm glad to see that it's been uh, preserved in some way. But what's important is, I think, what went on in front of it, which is where all the business took place. And it would be nice to, to note that on a plaque with reproductions of just some of the pictures that have been done from different ages to note that when you're walking into the building, when you're walking under the FDR drive, 
um, that you were in this place that was important for 185 mm -hmm. years. Until we get those plaques, we at least can proclaim your book to be the next closest thing to visiting and remembering these places. Professor Jonathan Reese's new book called The Fulton Fish Market, A History, is published by Columbia University Press. Dr. Reese, thank you very much for joining us today on the Barry Boys Podcast. Thanks so much. You are welcome. Please visit our website, BoweryBoysHistory.com, for more images of the things that we spoke about on today's show. And of course, be sure to pay a visit to the seaport itself and to the South Street Seaport Museum in particular. Now, to those who support the Bowery Boys on Patreon.com, we hope that you're enjoying our new bonus podcast called Side Streets which looks at extra and tangential things about life in New York City. Uh, the latest episode is actually a conversation with my guest from last week's show, Kyle Supley. And then for the next episode, Tom and I will be on the show and getting nostalgic about New York City movie theaters because one of our absolute favorites, the old Chelsea Cinema at 23rd and 8th Avenue, has closed for good. So we are we're going to take the opportunity to sh to pour some out for the Chelsea Cinema and to share some other fond tales of movies past. We want to thank new supporters on our Patreon page, Tammy R from Schenectady County, and additional patrons Jane W, Andrea L, Jennifer S, Bixby B, August R, Rob K, Tom O, Chris E, Monica S. And Emmy, the Brooklyn Wonder Dog. That's right. Join the party and join Emmy, the Brooklyn Wonder Dog at patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. So thank you very much for listening to our tale of the Fulton Fish Market. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.